Platforms form the foundation of the financial advice process for many investors. But like many propositions in the financial services industry, they can be complicated and need researching to decide upon the best fit for each client. My guest today started Platform People, a company providing advisory, resource and due diligence services for advisors looking to compare platforms. Listen to Chris as he tells a fascinating story about how he built Platform People and its employee-focused culture. Listen how... As a former military helicopter pilot, he applied lessons from the military to his financial services business. That's all right here in episode 23 of the Marketing Protection and Finance podcast. Hi, it's Roger Edwards here, and you're listening to the podcast for providers and advisors looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of protection and finance. For each episode, you can find the show notes and links to things we talked about at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF. So let's get on with the show and prepare to be inspired. So let's get started. Today I'm talking to Chris Hitchens. As Chief Executive Officer, Chris has built up Platform People, which is an organically started and grown debt-free multi-million pound business with five offices nationally. It was the first company in the UK to be accredited with Investors in People Gold and iOS 9001 on its first attempt. And they also have ISO 27001. Chris believes the best way to look after his clients is for him to look after his people. Before starting Platform People, Chris worked in financial services, software, consulting, engineering, M&A and retail. Earlier than that, he was a military helicopter pilot with the Army Air Corps for 14 years, so he has strong personal values regarding integrity, honour and delivery no matter what the task is and is always looking for people with similar values to work with. He owns a Harley Davidson and a bright orange chopper motorcycle. So, Chris, welcome to the Empath Podcast. Thanks, Roger. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. Chris, I always like to begin the podcast by finding out a little bit about you. So, tell me a little bit about your background. What makes you tick? Where did you come from and where are you going? Uh, That's a really good question. So, you you sort of gave the potted history there as to my background and and you're absolutely right. I flew uh, with the Army Air Corps for 14 years, which sort of gave me a a deep sense of uh, of doing the right thing, which, as I found with platform people, running a quality organisation is often a very expensive way to do business, but it is the right way. So, you know, what makes me tick? It's our four core values and these are things that we're talk to me in the military about quality, making sure that you do quality when people aren't watching rather than only when they are. Precision, doing what you say you're going to do. Deliver, deliver what you say you're going to do. And our final one's this breed of core, which is where we look after one another. And that's through the good and the bad. So of the last five years, I think the things that the, the thing that's made me tick is uh, is getting the people through the uh, the ups and downs of uh, a startup business into an SME. I like the uh, the terminology, a breed of core. It reminds me of nearly 
15 years ago when I was involved in the startup Bright Grey. And that was one of the things that we built up from scratch was a company focused on the people because we believed that if the people were happy and the people were treated amazingly, then they would provide amazing customer service to advisors and to end customers. Seems like you've got the same sort of ethos there. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think, you know, how do you treat people, you know, the way that you explain it is to be inclusive. So, for instance, next week uh, we're doing strategy and everybody's involved in that. It's not just five guys in a room coming up with what we think is the right answer. Uh, it's a very inclusive process where everybody's involved. They're involved in the, the, the thinking around the strategy, the generation of it, and then the actual execution. And if you look at some of the, the stats on strategy, 90% of them fail because the company doesn't understand them or they're not brought into it because it's being forced upon them. And I think our success and the reason why we're completely independent is because everybody's brought into what we're doing. Now, unfortunately, we don't always get it right. We make mistakes. Uh, of course we do. We're human. And we don't kill ourselves about it too much we try and learn and we try and make it better so we've got a quite a lot of continuous improvement going on now that's a really really boring word normally nobody wants to do it because it's hard but normally if you've been involved in the creation of the strategy and the execution of it and you've seen it go right or wrong you are actually incentivized to carry on and get it right and i believe what we've fostered in uh, platform people is a bunch of people who are as passionate as i am about getting it right uh, and constantly wanting to learn and to be honest that that's kind of stuck and it, it, it's now just part of the fabric that we probably don't recognize but when we have new starters uh, we always get sort of a look of surprise after the first week when they, they can't believe they're being asked their opinion on stuff so but I think that's that's how we treat our people. It's a fallacy I think that strategy is only for the more senior people within organizations I think if people do what you've done and involve everybody at all levels of the organization and make them part of that journey then of course it's going to create a, a much more inclusive feel and people almost feel as if they're invested within that strategy as you say as opposed to just having it forced upon them and especially if they can articulate that strategy quite simply to all of your customers then it makes you feel like you've got the the whole thing worked out from end to end it's almost like the proverbial stick of rock you break it open at any point and it all says the same thing absolutely right i mean when I started the business, I always knew that I wanted to start a quality business rather than sort of a spray and pray and hope for the best. And in 2010, one of the first things I did was uh, I wanted to secure investors in People Gold, which only 3% of companies in the UK have got. So there's, there's quite a lot of work involved to make sure that you know, you've got all the processes in place and it's not oddly onerous. And the good thing was, was we actually did quite a lot of them already. And, uh, and now we have an external order every year where somebody comes in and they actually interview every one of your staff. So it's not as though you can just show them bits of paper and things like that, that there's interviews, there's a paper trail, there's all sorts of stuff. And they measure you on 174 points. Uh, and I'm glad to say that, you know, we've now had investors in people gold for the last five years and, and we'll continue to, you know, to invest in that because I think it's important. One of the the other things that I did was I took platform people to Cranfield Management School to a thing called the, the BGP, the Business Growth Program, where we competed against uh, 40 other businesses, uh, ranging from a couple of million turnover up to 50, 60 million. Uh, and we actually won that in, 2000, uh, in 2011. So I spent uh, a bit of time with Cranfield talking about this, about how to get the best out of your people uh, and stuff like that. But I think the key to me is get the foundation there and make it include and 
you know, what people in platform people feel now is that it's their company rather than they work for me. And I think that's it's vastly important that people feel that way. You end up with people who feel accountable about the business rather than just slipping the cart on at 5.30 and going home. Absolutely. And when they're in the pub or whether they're out with their friends, they're going to be making positive statements about platform people. They're going to be telling people how much they enjoy working for you and the fact they feel inclusive. Oh, and do you know what we did today? We talked about the strategy or we talked about next year's um, marketing plan plan and everybody knows about it and everybody's behind it yeah i mean we spend a lot of time so i don't know if you've seen our morning news pack so we've created some technology and we've got 783 people in the platform space now who sign up to this where we we produce the top stories and there's a free dilbert on there and every morning we kind of get we we get together as a team and we discuss what's in the news and how we think that affects our customer and the actual angle here is well you know what would we do if we were in their shoes why is this happened and what can we do to make it better and there's a real feel I'm, I'm going to say charity but of course we're a business of how how can we understand that better and I think what I like about the company is the learning environment and the approach to people wanting to increase the knowledge rather than just seeing the news as a hygiene factor so I think getting people you know really really interested in the market has been has been key for us and you know I've now turned Warrington into the financial square inch of the UK which is quite good so we've got quite a good nucleus up here of people who know uh, quite a well, quite a lot about the whole value chain, ranging from IFAs, you know, TPA, TAs, the platforms, the technology providers, stockbrokers, custodians, the whole lot. And it's quite good. I'm quite proud. Simple ideas are often the best. And I love that way that you meet every morning to discuss the news. Again, talking way back to, to when I was at Bright Grey, we used to have a daily session with everybody. And that was called the jump start. And it was a similar sort of thing. It was before you get your coat off and you bury your head in your emails and you bury your head in your TV screen, you actually sit in a social environment and discuss with your colleagues things that have happened in the news, things that are important to the business, perhaps business targets, sales volumes, that sort of thing. And it wakens everybody up, it makes them feel inclusive and it sets them up, it jump starts them for the day ahead. It sounds exactly the sort of, uh, we nicked that idea from a trip to America, we, we visited the Ritz-Carlton chain of hotels and, and every single person in every Ritz-Carlton hotel wherever it is in the world for five minutes at the start of every day they have a little news meeting like you've just described and everybody it just it focuses their attention so simple idea but amazing what it can do for customer service so platform people is obviously people and platforms i have to admit chris it's taken me a long time to actually understand what platforms are i think they used to be described as raps didn't they maybe maybe give us a little bit of background about platforms platform people and what you do and how you differ from platform providers. Uh, okay. Uh, after leaving the military and working my way up the project management career ladder, ended up as a program director at various life cars. And, and what I realized very quickly is all the platforms that I've worked on suffered from pretty much the same problems, be it client money to, you know, how we scale the business and get a critical mass, etc., etc. And I've grown a, a fairly big network at this point, which is why I decided to build platform people. Uh, initially, it started as a recruitment business because on doing some research there were hundreds of uh, dead consultancies out there that had run out of cash flow so in setting up as a recruitment business I managed to uh, secure a positive balance sheet and grow from there so hence we've grown organically and we're independent from there I started the consultancy which is the main drive of the business and then uh, two years ago we started due diligence so what due diligence does 
is it works with advisors and networks and it advises them on what's the best platform to choose based on their client needs and client segmentation and stuff like that. So if you imagine that feeds the consultancy, consultancy feeds the resourcing elements of the business and so on. So we have this sort of perpetual business model that works. But if you think about sort of the platform market and, and some of the, you know, some of the issues in there, you know, we can make this call as long as you want, Roger, that there's plenty to go at. There's always going to be something that's, when it's happening in, in one platform provider, it's going to be happening in another. And where platform people play into that is we, if I break it down to a very simple model, we service both platform technology providers, so the Bravuras, GBST, FNZs of this world. We also work with platform providers, Friends Life, Scandia, uh, Zurich. There's, there's plenty to go out there as well. So how we how we're different from them is one we actually provide them with resource a lot of the time it's a operational and project management delivery type style resource uh, on the consultancy front we uh, we consult with the whole of the uh, the platform value chain so that's you know IFAs through due diligence all the way through to uh, custodians and I suppose what makes us different is our aim there is to try and get as much value out the platform value chain so because it's quite a young market they've all kind of worked in silos so the platform technology providers when they first started they were software houses now they're starting to get uh, a lot more into the servicing you know equally people like IFDS have now got Blue Door and they're trying to do platforms as well so people are spreading uh, horizontally across the value chain and I suppose where platform people fits into that is we're looking uh, to find ways of how they can all work much uh, much more efficiently together So an IFA might come to you and say we're, we're looking for a platform to, to base our business on yeah. do, you, do you do a, effectively a comparison service of, of the providers that are available and say well uh, Friends Life you've mentioned over here have got XYZ features and Scandia over here have got um, ABC features and looking at your client bank and, the, and the, the sort of client that you're dealing with we think that X provider would be the best platform for you to use or is it done more at a client level so you give the advisors the, the ability to say well for this particular client it's Friends Life and for this particular client it's, it's Scandia. We, we, we come at it two ways so we, we've built a portal we're, we're the only people in the market at the minute that every platform logs in into and logs their changes so we've got quite a lot of information from the platforms uh, against questions in, in the technology which quiz them about you know what their platform does the pricing etc etc so we've got that element we've also got due diligence consultants that, that work with advisors and use at a very basic level the Gabriel report as well as a lot of other questions and this applies to DFMs as well where we'll look at their business and we marry the technology and the fact find that we do together so that they get a bespoke report on you know what they should be concentrating on and which platform provider they should actually be working with given their client needs obviously with the FCA uh, saying that people need more than one platform uh, and I agree with that I, I think there's uh, only a few unique opportunities where you'd only ever need one but uh, I suppose you can have that, that conversation with Rory Percival uh, at the <laughs> FCA but yeah our approach is sort of top down and bottom up so we can, uh, we can marry people with the right platform for their clients and therefore giving clients uh, a, a better service So where did the idea for platform people come from Chris what, what was the what was the day when the light bulb went off that you <laughs> thought ah here we go there's an opportunity here let's build a business called platform people I think the better question is should I have taken the red pill <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're working inside an organisation and I was as a contractor and then you go to another organisation uh, and you contract there and, and then you do it again a third time and you realise actually all these problems are exactly pretty much the same but there's you know maybe a slightly different feel to it if you've fixed it once then you know you can fix it again
again and you've got yourself a repeatable process and being sort of the free spirit I was after doing this a couple of times I realised that actually I could do it myself to the quality that I wanted to do it at where I could actually I, I could be much more impartial offer a lot more candor and therefore a lot more value because you know if you look at the platform market now dare I say it it's, it's getting quite hard to differentiate between platform providers as to what they do differently there's a lot of me too things out there uh, and I think you know what we're trying to add value is helping people understand how, how they can raise their appeal through and, is it, and is it quite complicated the platform market and I know you said that it's almost become commoditized now that everybody it's difficult to differentiate between what they offer but I've always had the impression as a as more of an outsider looking at the platform market that it is quite complicated and it needs financial advisors to explain to the end customer what they're going to to get um, when in fact the whole idea of the platform initially for a consumer's point of view was hey everything's going to be on one screen all your investments all your pensions etc in one place so the idea is quite a simple one has it become too complicated i, I think that that's a, that, that's kind of an issue of the human race isn't it trying to simplify something that's that, that's complex or abstract is very hard by its very nature and i think when you look at how people viewed platforms maybe 10 years ago, they were seen as the proposition, or actually now they're seen as a means to get, you know, policy administration charges down or something like that, you know, through aggregation, disaggregation and things like that. So platforms are viewed very, very differently. The first couple that I built were actually seen as the, you know, the front-end sales tool and the thing that you were selling. Mm-hmm. And actually, they're not a product at all, but they're an administration system there to give you, you know, a scale of economy, which is hopefully where you're going to make your profit. And I think how they're being... You you know, they're being viewed or are, are, are clarity as to what they are and what they do and their place within the business. That's evolving tenfold. But I think what's making it more complex is the, you know, the avenues to market, B2B to C, D2C, uh, workplace platform or retail platform. And whilst there's not a lot of difference in the technology, there is differences. Of course, there's differences. But it's how you take it to market. And I think that's the journey that people are going on that they're finding quite hard. So I've been in conversations about D2C platforms where I'm, I'm trying to educate people that the actual propositions, the UI, the user interface, the thing that the actual customer sees. We've we've worked with D2C platforms where there's been 16 screens to sell an ISA. Nobody's going to want that. That That's the complexity that you're talking about. And I think it's really, really important that people start getting customers on board when they're building and designing these platforms to take the complexity out of it almost. I think, uh, you know, there's some UIs out there that are very good like Nutmegs, and I think there's a leaf that can be taken out of that book. And you said that pretty much all of the main platforms now are very similar and that uh, differentiating between them is, is quite difficult. Where does platform people play into that? Are you highlighting the differences between the platforms to IFAs and their customers and showing the advantages of one over the other? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, I'll clarify my comment in that I think for the common man on the street, the differentiation is is very, very, very hard. I I know the differences between the platforms, but if you're not in financial services and uh, and you're you're an investor, I think it's it's incredibly hard. Uh, And I think that's one of the issues with the industry. People just don't understand what it is that they're buying. I think where platform people gets involved, that, that that's that's a twofold answer. So from the due diligence side, as I've said, we work top down and bottom up with platforms and IFAs to marry a platform to you know the IFA's clients. The other side of it is the consultancy. Uh, we're often engaged on uh, on engagements where it, it can be anything from help design a UI or work with a third party from the gaming industry, for instance. 
to make a UI more appealing, to going in and implementing process efficiencies throughout the whole operation, so taking out waste and things like that. So it's really the whole spectrum that we cover, which probably isn't the answer that you're looking for, because uh, I could talk about it forever, but uh, that, that's generally where we play into that problem. I think, it, again, it highlights one of the issues that comes up on the Empath podcast time and time again, is that ultimately the man on the street is looking for simplicity, and as an industry, the financial services industry often makes things overly complicated, and it sounds like just in the same way as the protection market is complicated, it sounds like the platform sector, whilst it was originally intended to make things simpler for the end customer, again, it's ballooned to the point where it has become too complicated, and we need people like yourselves to cut through that complexity and and help advisors and help customers work out what's what. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you know, this goes back to, you know, I certainly didn't get any financial training as I was growing up by what my mum and dad did by making me save pocket money. But, you know, when I went to school, nobody actually taught me how to read a set of accounts or anything like that. You know, I, like many others, uh, as a younger guy, was very underconfident with what to do with my money. Therefore, it just went in the bank. You know, people take the fastest the fastest route to ground when they don't understand something. Well, if it's like me, anything to do with numbers after I'd finished my uh, maths O-level, that was me out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, we've got a long way to go in demystifying that. And one of the things we're looking at with uh, the due diligence is how do we work with the D2C market so that we can start to give uh, the general public uh, the information in three-year-olds. So, you know, as I said before the call, I've got a two- and a six-year-old, and I'm determined that my six-year-old, by the age, you know, of 16, will understand finances so that he knows the difference and he knows what to do with his money. I think that's probably one of the most powerful lessons I'll be able able to teach him. And I think if, uh, if financial services can do that, that would be a fantastic start. How does the uh, D2C market differ from the B2C market in um, in platform space? That, that's an absolutely vast question. I, I think, from my perspective, there's a lot of companies that want to go into the D2C platform space, and I don't think it's they've fully considered the complexities of it. So if you look at the, the technology that's out there, there's uh, there's only a few providers that are, I would say, in a position to provide you with technology where you could get scale quickly, providing that your proposition's right. Then you've got to sort out your operation, uh, and you're up against the likes of Highbreeds, Lansdowne, who spends, you know, oodles of cash on marketing and things like that. You need contact centers, you need people, you know, it, it's a very, very, very hard gig. I think the B2B2C market's quite a smart one, uh, because people don't need advising on absolutely everything, so they may need, you know, advising on some products, but nine times out of ten, most people don't need you know, they could use a, a, a D2C offering for their ISA or something like that. But the, ba- the barriers to entry to the D2C market are massively high then. I, I believe so, yeah. I don't think it's an easy market to conquer. And I think the actual, I think the marketplace will be, you know, I thoroughly believe that some of the D2C platforms that are having it hard at the minute will come good in sort of three to five years' time as, as the younger generation come through. And they're much more confident both online and, and with investing, I, I think. Uh, I think they'll see some returns there. But at the minute, it's it's a hard slogan. If you're setting up, it's a formidable task. So talking about setting up, Chris, what were the challenges that you faced getting platform people off the ground? And how did you overcome those challenges to make it work? People. In short, uh, anybody who's listening who has raised a business uh, that, that would agree with me that the 
that the hardest thing to understand and plan for is people. When I originally started, I took a lot of people who had done what we were doing. So, you know, I hired some recruiters, for instance, uh, and some people who had done, done, done the platform thing. What became apparent fairly quickly was whilst they were good in their own right, they could only think the way that they could think. So how I got around it was... I started hiring people who had never worked in financial services before and we trained them and we, you know, therefore we weren't hiring people with, you know, the bad habits that I've got and things like that. The people that were hired weren't bad, but sometimes it, it helps if you can bring people in who aren't constrained in their thinking. And I think that's the thing that's kept us uh, fresh and attack the problems differently. Recruit for attitude and train for skill. <laughs> I like that. I'll pinch it. Yeah, we, that's, 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 a, that's an approach that I've used in the past as well. And it's good. You get new blood coming in through the door. You don't worry yourself too much that they know much about what you do as a business because you know that if they've got the really strong attitude to succeed, that you can tell them. You can teach them what a term assurance is or an ISA is or a platform is. It's the attitude that you need that they desperately want to be successful that you need to get them in through the door. And any other challenges that you, you um, face, Chris? Yeah, I think as as a small business, trying to grow has been that that that, that has been a tumultuous ride. Uh, we grew uh, we grew quite rapidly just before RDR, and when RDR came out, uh, it, it dealt quite a blow to our business where we had to cut our numbers uh, and resize slightly. One of the issues that we've got. Uh, is as an SME after the credit crunch trying to secure funding to grow your business is something that you can't do so we've had to grow we, we've literally had, had to control everything ourselves and grow I think you know when I've been growing platform people before before the uh, the, uh, the the credit crunch then it would have been easy to get external funding to grow the business so one of the setbacks but also one of the great lessons is we haven't been able to grow as fast as we would like early on but now our understanding of how we manage our cash and how we invest in our own company and it's one of the reasons why we're so inclusive on the strategy is because we're up and book about our accounts so everybody in the company knows what's coming in and what's going out and you know people make the pounds count which is really really important so it is all kind of interlinked. And did all of this uh, people focused attitude that you have Chris come from your time in the army? Definitely uh, one of the things I didn't realise and it took me a few years was well if I go back a bit further I remember one of my first interviews after leaving having uh, uh, having a debate with the hiring manager who kept reminding me that I had no commercial experience and I remember arguing back saying you've got no military experience so actually we're both in the dark <laughs> and what I've realised over time is that the, the skills I learned in the military are highly transferable it's just you know what, what you call one thing in, in civilian life it's actually called something slightly different in military life but the application is exactly the same and a lot of the lessons that I were taught there uh, I've brought with me and it, it's paid great dividends uh, I, I would always hire an ex-military person because uh, I know what I'm getting at a base level and I'm getting I'm getting those values that I'm after and of course when you're in the army and I've not, never been in the army but uh, the because you have to rely upon each other in, in often life-threatening situations, the team becomes indispensable and the, the communication between the team becomes indispensable. And I can see how you can transpose some of that team ethic into an, an actual business. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, contrary to popular belief, I didn't march up and down a square every day for eight hours a day, and I certainly didn't take off at 8.30 and land at 5.30. You know, part of my job when I was in was uh, managing a lot of people, and that involved managing the families, managing problems that had very little to do with the army. 
and at the same time had to maintain a flying career. And you kind of don't appreciate that until you come out and run a business and think, I'm actually doing exactly the same, but I'm not wearing the uniform. What would be the one big idea, Chris, that you've learned from developing platform people that you'd like those people who are listening to this podcast today to take away from the experiences that you've had? <laughs> We're going to have to pause there while I think about that one. Uh, that, that's, that, that's a huge thing. You know, one of the things that's helped me scale my business is automated processes we we spend a lot of time looking at how we do it and trying to take the waste out of it or do it better and we're a big believer in creative destruction so for those of you who don't know what creative destruction is if you think you know the iphone 4 was around for a year then apple destroyed it and came out with the iphone 5 and then they destroyed it again and so on and so on and so on and i think what we're trying to do is there's there's no process within platform people that's that sacred that we would ever we would ever, you know, we would ever review it or look to amend it. So we're big into our creative destruction. And I've got a guy in today for interview who's he's just come out of university, and we've given him. He's actually sat just outside my office, pondering through a problem that we've got, and saying, "Come at this completely different. Nothing's sacred. You're allowed to sack absolutely everybody, including the boss, if that's the answer." And it's been absolutely amazing when we do that with our employees. What comes back? because they'll show us things that we would never think of. You know, we're too dusty uh, and a bit slow uh, and maybe a bit too compressed into our own world to, to not see uh, not, not see a really good answer. So that, that's been there. Uh, that, that would be what I would encourage your listeners to, uh, to try. Creative destruction. I love that term. And actually, again, if you think about it, in the financial services industry, one of the big problems that we have is that we've always done things a certain way. And, and admittedly, sometimes the, the processes that we have in place are deep-rooted within systems and legacy systems and systems built on top of systems and more systems built on top of other, other systems. But that shouldn't be an excuse for throwing something away if it's not doing a good job for your customer. And I, and I think that's a massive learn for all of us in the financial services to do what you're doing and say, look, we can change things, even if we have to change things every year. If it isn't working, we, te- we throw it away. If there's a better way of doing it, then we change. Now, a lot of people will disagree with what I'm saying here, say, oh, but we do that all the time. But I think the actual reality is that some of us are so constrained by our legacy systems and sometimes just of our, our legacy thinking that we just don't get that movement. The, yeah, there is, you know, people are always going to tackle the easy stuff first and the hard stuff last. That goes without saying. And it, it, it harks back to one of my one of my bosses in the military. When he heard I was leaving, he came to see me and he it gave me probably one of the most inspirational uh, sound bites that I've taken with me through the years that everybody's going to queue up to tell you what you can't do. It's up to you whether you believe them. And, uh, that, you know, that sort of rung through every time. And when we look at a process or something, you know, be it anything where I think someone's going to tell me I can't do that, I then take, you know, the positive steps and say, right, well, we absolutely must. We've got to risk, you know, we've got to risk something here to make it better. And I think the bigger the organisation, the more aversion to risk sometimes. So, you and that's how legacy is made and looking at the consumer and and again one of the things that I think that we have an issue with in the financial services industry is despite how hard we try to be more customer focused there are lots of people that say that we aren't what would you say you've done with platform people to be customer focused and to make sure that the end customer is getting the best service and the best deal out of what you provide I think when 
uh, I designed the proposition. My, my customers were, let's say, platform providers. What I had to look at then was go down a customer value chain of, well, what do my customers' customers want, i.e. the IFAs? And what we're constantly trying to do is work out what our customers' customer wants. So hence us looking at, uh, the, you know, how do we uh, interact with the general public about DTC platforms? I think it's really, really important that you know what your customers' customer wants, not just your customer. You can end up giving people what they want rather than what they need. And again, that happens a lot of the time. And one of the problems we do have in the industry is that when you are one step removed from the end customer, sometimes the intermediary and the customer requirement is slightly disjointed and you end up having to accommodate both. And that that creates a little bit of conflict. Yeah, no, you're right. So what's worked extremely well for you and what's not worked so well? Tell us how you've had to modify your approach as a result of feedback that you've received from people as you've develop your business model i think one of the one of the big problems we had in the early days because i had a recruitment company and a consultancy it was very hard to differentiate and sell them as two separate things to a client and we've had to spend quite a lot of time understanding how we tell that story ourselves where we are now is, is a lot better because we've segregated the businesses which is how we made that better because it was kind of confusing what it was, what it was that we did uh, with our customers. I'd say that, that that was quite a hard learning curve and it's, and it's one that just required time and understanding. So a lot of work, Chris, a lot of experience brought from your army days, a lot of focus on people, a lot of focus on the requirements of advisors and focus on the requirements of your end customers. What have been the rewards for all your hard work and investment? What about the results that you've achieved with platform people? Tell us a little bit about that. I, I think, you know, one of the biggest achievements is that we're still fiercely independent uh, and that's enabled us to, to operate with a level of candor because there's no conflict of interest uh, in the industry, that that's massively rewarding because we can do it how we would want to do it, which is, you know, that there's no back pressure there because we can't tell you the truth because of something else. Obviously, we're, you know, we're doing well financially. We're hiring people and we're growing. Uh, we're just in the process of, of looking to open in Melbourne and Sydney as well, which is quite good uh, through uh, uh, through some new key hires. I think for me, the biggest reward is knowing that. I'm doing a quality job. It's almost uh, religious in a way because it, it, it is very, very hard. And everybody, it, me included, you know, there are days when you wish you could cut a corner. But when you don't, afterwards, it, it's vastly rewarding that you've done the right thing. Uh, and I take, I take quite a lot out of that. Chris, thank you so much for such a fascinating insight into your business. I love your people focus. I love the the way that you've brought your learnings from the army into your business. I love the way that you've created an independent business with a focus on simplicity. Before we go, however, I always like to finish the Empath podcast with a quick fire round of business questions. There's only four of them. Are you happy just to quickly go for that? Sure. If there was one thing that you could change about the financial services industry, perhaps by waving the proverbial magic wand, what would it be? Uh, for people to explain things to me in three-year-olds. I love, I love that. I love that. Again, it's simplicity is the key. What is the one business model or a product or a marketing campaign that's caught your attention in the last year? Even if it was from a competitor, tell us what it was and what you liked about it. I think one of the best adverts I've ever seen was the Royal Marines one that said 99% need not apply. 
<laughs> and I, I think we had 99% increase in entrance. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, completely out of financial services, of course, but I thought that was that was epic. Sometimes we have to look outside financial services to get the best ideas, I think. Tell us about an app or a gadget that's made a huge difference to your life and or your business. Well, for those who know me, uh, I started this year as a, as a bit of a porky chap. Uh, and basically since uh, since March, I've been uh, quite disciplined in losing quite a lot of weight and getting myself fit to the point where I'm doing triathlons now. Uh, and the thing I would say that saved my life was uh, a bit of technology called a, jo- a jawbone up 24 wristbands. You know, it's one of these activity trackers. I've got one on my wrist as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. And that uh, combined with my fitness pal. And I've been I've been quite draconian in writing absolutely everything that I eat or drink into this app and watching my calories. So since March, uh, I've tried to keep my calorie intake to around about a thousand calories a day, and I've upped my exercise to around about two two thousand calories a day where possible. And I've lost an absolute shed. I've had to re- I've even had to replace shoes as my feet have shrunk. I think uh, the scariest thing about the jawbone though is tell is it tells you how badly you sleep. I actually <laughs> I actually look at my jawbone in the morning on my iPhone. It says I was awake five times during the night. That's not that's not good. And, and finally, Chris, what's the best business book you've ever read? Tell us why you like it so much and what you took from it. It's not actually a business book. It's a military book, and it's uh, from General uh, Sir Peter de la Billiere, who's one of the architects of the modern-day SAS, as you would know it. And he, he wrote a book called Looking for Trouble, where he was appointed the uh, commander of the first Gulf War. And if you read it, there's obviously a military uh, thread to it, but it was about how he worked with uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and the Americans, how he set up his management team, how he got through crisis after crisis while managing upwards to uh, a lot of politicians, and it, it, it was an epic read. The other one on top of that that's exactly the same but with a, a civilian flavour is the one uh, by Terry Leahy, the, uh, the the last CEO of Tesco's that uh, took them to great the greatness. He was the guy who brought out the club card. Right. Uh, that. Those two books combined, I would say, are my killer reads. And Chris, before we sign off, tell everyone how they can connect with you on Twitter, LinkedIn and Google+, and of course your website. Sure. Uh, the website is www.platformpeople.com. Uh, you can find me on uh, on Twitter. And unfortunately, I share the same name as uh, as very famous journalist. But yes, of course, I'm, Peter Hitchens' uh, brother. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm on Facebook as well, and of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm mobile. If anybody wants to contact me directly, zero seven nine one seven zero one zero one zero one. I hope people do want to contact you directly, Chris, because that's the whole point of the Empath Podcast is putting people in touch with each other. What I will do is I'll include all of these contact details on the splash page for this particular episode, and that's at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath. So all that it really remains for me to say is thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me today. Let me wish you every success and hope to catch up with you again soon. Thanks very much for your time, Roger, and I look forward to talking to people about how they can make the businesses better. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast, also known as the Empath Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash empath for links to the apps and books and topics we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. 
simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a comment. If you are a provider, advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model that you want to talk about, do please get in touch. I'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the Empath Podcast. And before we go, just to remind you that nothing that my guests and I talked about on the show is intended to be financial advice of any kind. It's just our thoughts and opinions, okay? Thank you.